The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information, please visit our website at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Margot Landman, Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Leita Hong Fincher, a former journalist who just completed her doctorate in sociology at Tsinghua University in Beijing. We will discuss her new book, Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China. Leita, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about your book. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with a definition. What is a leftover woman? The term leftover woman, or shengnu, was defined in 2007 by the All-China Women's Federation to mean an urban, educated woman over the age of 27 who's still single. And the term was also adopted by China's Ministry of Education that year. And ever since uh, it was defined in 2007, it's been very aggressively pushed by the Chinese state media. And the media reports and commentaries and even cartoons are extremely derogatory and insulting. And they're targeting specifically women with a college education or higher, telling them that they really need to get married before time runs out. How many people are we talking about? What proportion of the population is urban educated single women in this age group? Yeah, well, that's a really good question that I'm actually not able to answer. I think I focus more on the campaign, why it is that the government has created this category of women, because it's really just, um, I mean, these are single educated women. And if you look at the actual average marriage age of Chinese women, according to the 2010 census, it's still only about 25 years old, which is really not Not that late. (laughs) There are actually various statistics put out by the Chinese government. Um, But I think the point that I'd like to make is that leftover women as such don't really exist. They're a category of women made up by the Chinese government to put pressure on women with a university education to pressure them to marry earlier and to make them believe that time will run out for them if they wait too long, if they wait until past 30 to get married. What's the hurry? What's behind the government's role in pressuring these educated young women to get married? I researched the origins of the term, and shortly before the media campaign was rolled out in 2007, China State Council issued a population decision. And it was a very important policy announcement that said that China faces a very severe problem of so-called low quality of its population. And so the government needs to so-called upgrade population quality. And by population quality, it can mean superior genetic makeup or education or a nurturing environment. So um, I believe that it's no coincidence that the State Council came out with this major population policy announcement just before it, it started pushing the term leftover women because the term is really focusing on so-called high-quality 
educated women who naturally want to delay marriage to further their educations and advance their careers. Um, and the campaign is basically sending the message that these women need to stop focusing so much on their careers and educations and they need to focus on finding a good husband instead so that they can have a child for the good of the nation. But if this was in 2007, the one-child policy was still basically in effect in urban areas. Why would it be so important that these young women have their baby at 26 rather than at 29 or 30? Well, it's not so much the age. Uh, the age is defined as... 27 by the All-China Women's Federation, but really it's, it's an all-encompassing kind of campaign that goes beyond just media reports. Um, it also involves mass matchmaking campaigns. Um, and the pressure on young women to marry actually starts much earlier. Um, I've come across women who are still in college, who are 20 or 21, who express anxiety about finding a man to marry. In the Xinhua News, the official news agency reports about these mass matchmaking fairs in Shanghai. It was widely reported that the youngest woman attending the last mass matchmaking fair was only 21 years old. And she was quoted as saying that she knows she's not left over yet, but she wants to make sure that she doesn't wind up leftover. So to, it's not exactly the age of 27. It's just, it's really targeting women in their 20s. And even doctors are involved in telling women in their 20s that they need to hurry up and have a child. Otherwise, if they wait too long, their child will have a birth defect. Scare tactics. Yes. You talk a lot in one of your chapters about home ownership, that young women own a very small proportion of real estate, not because they don't participate in the purchase of apartments, but because their names are not on the deeds and there's often no record of their financial contributions to the properties. Could you explain how this works? Well, basically, ever since China's real estate boom took off in the mid-2000s, there has been, along with intense pressure to marry, also intense pressure to buy a home on the newly privatized home market. So before 1998, housing was basically subsidized by the state. It was allotted by your work unit. But what I found now is that there is a, a very strong norm of buying a home when you get married. And because homes are so expensive, there are very complicated dynamics involved. Parents tend to buy homes only for their sons and not for their daughters. Most homes are registered in men's names only. And a lot of young women will transfer their life savings to the man to finance a home without putting their name on the deed. And when I questioned these very educated, very intelligent young women about why they were leaving their name off the deed, when in fact a lot of the women really want their name on the deed, they want economic independence, um, it basically comes down to extreme pressure from their parents, from the parents of the man that they're marrying, and from their own anxiety that if they don't get married now, um, that if their demands are too great, then they will never find another husband. 
that they'd feel that they don't have any bargaining power. You mention economic independence and point out that Chinese banks don't allow people to hold joint accounts. Here in the U.S., some might argue that having separate bank accounts empowers women because they then have control over their own money. You make a different argument. Well, actually, I'm not totally convinced that it's necessarily a good thing for men and women to have separate bank accounts. I think that, you know, there's a lot of research. Um, I think the, the main issue is who owns the assets. The fact is that homes are the most valuable asset by far um, in Chinese households. Most homes are owned solely by men, um, and men tend to make a lot more money than women in China. And in fact, the gender income gap is widening quite dramatically. And so when joint bank accounts are not allowed, then the women, not only do they not own the most valuable asset in the household, they also don't necessarily have access to their husband's usually much greater income. So these are some of the many structural ways in which women are discriminated against economically. Now, it's not designed, this, these bank policies are not designed to discriminate against women. Mm -hmm. But um, in the research that I found, women end up being further marginalized by not being able to have a joint bank account Do with their husband. Do you know where these policies arose? Why can't people have joint accounts? Well, that's not something that I specifically studied. And in fact, I really think this is an area that needs a lot of further research. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't something that I was seeking out. It's just that in all the interviews that I did, not a single person had a joint bank account. Mm -hmm. Most of them didn't know what it was. And I personally went to some of China's largest banks and asked if I could open a joint bank account with my husband, and they said no. Um, now, it's possible that there are banks now, a year later, I haven't been researching, it's possible that joint bank accounts are starting to be allowed. And in fact, I would expect that to be the trend. As you point out in the book, female equality was very much a part of the rhetoric and the actions of the Chinese Communist Party, both before and after the establishment of the PRC. Just to name a few, the abolition of foot binding, the notion that women hold up half the sky, high rates of female labor force participation, the 1950 marriage law, one of the first laws to be promulgated, banning arranged marriages and so on. You argue that the last 10 or 15 years have not been kind to a particular segment of the urban female population. What happened? What changed? Well, I specifically look at urban educated women, but I have to stress that it's not just them, that rural women have been hurt as well. And basically it's the onset of market reforms that have really undermined women's gains of the early communist era. Just looking at female labor force participation, for example, by the end of the 1970s, it used to be extremely high, around 90% or higher in the cities. So there's this communist legacy of very high female labor force participation. 
but with the dismantling of the planned economy, starting with the onset of market reforms really 30 years ago, then women ended up being hurt more. They were fired first, then later when they looked for new jobs, they were the last to be hired. Then the gender income gap has also widened dramatically. It's because of a loss of state subsidies for all sorts of things, subsidies for housing, the state no longer allocates women jobs, and it's also dismantled subsidized childcare. So there are many, many ways in which communist policies of the past that really supported gender equality have been dismantled. That's pretty grim. What are the prospects, if there are any, for improvement in the lives of young urban Chinese women? Well, I... Uh, derive a lot of hope from some of the interviews that I do with young women who recognize that there is widespread sexism in society and in some of the state policies and in recent legal setbacks to women's property rights. And when women are aware of what's happening systemically to undermine their rights, then they're in a position to help themselves better. Some of the women that I've interviewed actually told me that they refuse to ever get married. And that's an extremely radical position to take. But on the other hand, it shows that the woman feels very empowered. She feels that she's able to make it on her own. She doesn't need to depend on a man. And so these are some hopeful signs. There are also feminist activists who are able to raise awareness about women's rights abuses, but I'm not too encouraged on that front because the government is really cracking down on a lot of these women's rights groups. But there is room for hope. I also believe, um, although I can't predict the future, but I believe that more and more women in the future will act to protect their economic interests. I think that as they're more aware of how important it is to own property in their own right, that women will insist on putting their names on property deeds. And I also hope that more and more parents will support their daughters in buying property. Is your sense that the parents and the prospective grooms will support women in this way in property ownership? Because certainly heretofore, they haven't been the least bit supportive. Yes. Well, I'm really not sure at all about the husband's, the prospective groom's support, because there's a huge amount of pushback from the parents of men who have saved a lot of money over their lifetimes to buy a home for their son, and they're extremely resistant to adding a woman's name to that deed, even when the woman contributes a significant amount of money. And that's just an indication of how astronomically expensive real estate is in China. It's a tremendous burden for men and women to buy a home. So, I mean, in the book, I also profile some men and show that there is a obviously a great burden on, on men as well and on men's families. But the fact is, if you look at who owns the assets, they're largely owned by men. And so there's a tremendous new creation of a gender wealth gap that's really, I believe, unprecedented. And I argue that women have really been shut out of this, probably the greatest accumulation of residential property wealth in history, which is worth over 30 trillion US dollars now. 
But I do think that the parents of daughters over time will want to protect their daughters' interests because the divorce rate is rising. That's my hope. Anyway, who, who knows what will happen in the future? You give some examples of very egregious treatment of women, either at the hands of their spouses and or by the police, such as Kim Lee and Sung Jin Yen. Could you tell us who they are and what their cases illustrate and how their specific experiences should be understood in the broader context of China today? Rather than focusing on individuals, I mean, I named Kim Lee in particular because she is the only woman in China to go public, very public, about her abuse at the hands of her husband. She's just emblematic of this tremendous epidemic of domestic violence. And what I want to emphasize is that there is simply no recourse for abused women. It's a terrible situation because when women are abused by their husbands and if they call the police, the police come generally and they say, this is family conflict and you're both at fault. Um, if the woman goes further and goes to the hospital to document her injuries, generally those documents don't really help her in court if she takes that extra step of going to court to sue her husband for a divorce. Now, first of all, that's assuming that the woman is courageous enough to go against her husband and her husband's extended family because there's a tremendous shame and stigma ab about speaking out about being beaten by your husband. There are a lot of people, especially in the older generation, who believe that you simply should stay quiet about abuse. And unfortunately, there is no targeted law on domestic violence in China. So judges, when they face these cases in court, have nothing to really rule on. And China really needs a targeted law on domestic violence to help judges rule in favor of women who've been abused by their husbands. Is um, such a thing in the works? Well, it is in the works, but it's been in the works for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing now is that it's possible that a law may be passed next year because next year is the 20th anniversary of the UN Conference on Women in, in Beijing. Um, and so the National People's uh, Congress may want to send a message that it's doing something for women. But who knows if that will happen? Who knows if the law will be good? But certainly there are a lot of feminist groups and scholars and lawyers who've been lobbying actively for over a decade for China to pass a domestic violence law. All right. Unfortunately, we're at the end of our time. Thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you so much.